All right, what we're going to do for the next half hour is a quick introduction to the book of Revelation. That's all we can do. Okay? Um, and we're not going to cover everything that's on that list, but most of the things. Okay? By the way, if you call it the book of Revelations, I reserve the right to throw an eraser at you. It is not the book of Revelations. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ that comes from the very first verse in the book. Okay. Very quickly, who wrote the book? John calls himself your brother and companion in tribulation on the Isle of Patmos, and we know from history that John the Apostle was imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. Everybody in the early church believed that John the Apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John, who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, wrote this book. Um, people have raised objections against John. The only one that has any significance is this third one. The Greek that's used in the book of Revelation is very unusual. It has a lot of what Greek grammarians would call errors. You know, saying like, two birds is sitting on that windowsill over there. There are mismatches of gender and of case and number and things like that. People say that John the Apostle had very good Greek in the other books he wrote, so this can't be him. All right? There are a number of possible explanations for that. John may have done it intentionally that way to make people sit up and notice. It's possible that he had a secretary who smoothed out his other writings for him, but when he was in prison, he didn't have a secretary to do that. We don't really know what the explanation is. Okay? There is a claim that somebody said, well, somebody said that Papias said John died before A.D. 70, but everybody else says he lived on into the 90s and was in exile in Patmos. So there's every reason to believe that John the Apostle wrote the book. Okay. Now, when was the book written and from where was it written? Provenance just means where it came from. Okay? When you read the book, it's pretty obvious that the church was facing persecution. Especially when you read the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, persecution is an issue. Now, from what we know of the history of the first century, there was persecution of Christians during the reign of Nero in the 60s and during the reign of Domitian in the 90s. Okay? The 90s fits a whole lot better because we know that John was in Patmos during the 90s and he was released, I think, after Domitian was assassinated in A.D. 96. So the book was probably written in the 90s. It was probably written in Patmos because John speaks of being there. And so all the evidence suggests that the book was written in the early 90s, around 95 to 96. Now the reason that the dating of the book is important will become clear in a few minutes. We'll get back to that. Who was the book written to and what was the occasion for its writing? Okay, I think the initial recipients of the book of Revelation were the people in those seven churches 
to whom the letter was sent in that area of Asia Minor. However, chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 28, verses 18 to 19, indicate that the Holy Spirit had a much wider audience in mind. 1.1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Now, his servants, I think, is a pretty broad designation. It's not just the people in those those seven churches. And then 22, verses 18 and 19, John says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things that are written in this book. So, although the twelve churches were the original audience, just like everything else in Scripture, it's for all believers of all ages. Okay? The occasion for the book, the reason that it was written, seemed to be the need for those early Christians and later generations, including us, to be motivated to live godly lives and to be prepared for the second coming of Christ. Okay. Now, I'm only going to talk about two of these, or one of these special issues. One of the issues that people argue about is what is the genre of the book. We've talked about genre before, right? Remember that from our first term? The kind of writing. I'm not going to discuss this because our time is short. Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> Second special issue is the interpretive approach. How should this book be interpreted? How should it be handled? Okay? There are four common interpretive approaches to the book of Revelation. We haven't gone over this, have we? I think we may have talked about this in our hermeneutics class a little bit. Okay? The allegorical or idealist view says that the book of Revelation isn't talking about any real events, past, present, or future. It's kind of like the Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegory. It's a story that is made up, but in the process of this fictional story being unraveled, spiritual truths are revealed. And the primary spiritual truth is that although it looks like the bad guys are winning, the good guys are going to win in the end. Okay? That's the idealist or allegorical view. Now, the preterist view, this comes from the word that means past. The preterist view is the idea that the book of Revelation is largely a coded sort of secretive discussion of Nero's persecution while it is occurring and shortly afterward. And Nero isn't named because the Christians were passing this book around and they were afraid that if somebody found it and Nero's name was in it, that they would get in trouble for telling stories about Nero. Now, those who hold this view will generally argue that the book was written in the 60s because that was the time of Nero's persecution. But all the evidence suggests that it was written in the 90s and that greatly weakens this idea. Furthermore, the description of the persecutions and the 
seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments and those things, those are kind of hard to fit into a description of persecution of the church by a mere human being, even if he was animated by the devil. Okay? The third view is the historicist view. The historicist view says that the description of events that's found in Revelation, basically Revelation 6 through 19, it's all of the, you know, the spooky stuff that leads up to the second coming of Christ. That is a sweep through the history of the church starting in the first century and going all the way up to the second coming of Christ. And people who hold this view will argue that they see um, Constantine and they see the Middle Ages and they see the Reformation and they see, um, you know, the... um, Oh, what was that group in the beginning of the 1900s? That ecumenical Christian group, the World Council of Churches. They would say that they see all this stuff in the book and it's a sweep through history. The problem with this view is that those who hold it always think it's about the church in the Western world. And the other problem with it is that nobody agrees which part of the book links up with which part of history. Okay? That's kind of a wacky view. Actually, all of these are wacky. The fourth view, and we always save the best for last, is the futurist view, which argues that Revelation chapter 6 all the way to the end of the book is about events that are still in the future. Okay, And I'll show you why that is the best view in a few moments. Okay, here are the reasons why. Take a look at 1.1. It says, things which must soon take place. 1.3 says, Blessed is he who reads and those who keep the words of this prophecy and who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. It's anticipating something that hasn't come yet. Uh, 1.19, this is really the key. The Lord Jesus Christ says to John, Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Now, in a few moments, what we'll see is that that gives you the structure of the book. Chapter 1 is the description of what John saw when he had a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Let's see. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's what he saw, the things which you have seen. Chapters 2 and 3 are the description of the seven churches that existed at the time when John was given the book. Everything that follows is the things which will take place after this. And actually, if you jump over to, let's see, chapter 4, verse 1, see what it says there. John, you already found this, right? In in chapter 4, verse 1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, Remember, chapter 2 and 3 are the letters to the churches. And the first voice, which I heard, was like a trumpet speaking with me and saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take take place after this. It's the same thing that was said in 119. Okay? 
So 119 really lays out the sequence of the books and book, and it's it's basically there are certain things that already happened, and the rest of it is in the future. Now one day it will be past, but it was future when John was given it, and it's still future now. The second reason the futurist view is best is that it fits the Old Testament expectation of Messiah's kingdom. Chapter 20, in particular, predicts the messianic kingdom on earth. And we've seen how the whole Old Testament and the covenant promises and the things which have been fulfilled and the things which haven't been fulfilled require there to be a future time during which the Messiah will reign over Israel so that the things that God has promised that haven't yet been fulfilled can be fulfilled. Otherwise, God is unfaithful. Otherwise, God is a liar. And of course, he isn't. Okay. Now, third reason in favor of the futurist view is that the victory in chapters 19, 20, 21, and 22 of the saints is hard to fit in the preterist view. The preterists say that the book is about events in the past. Well, the church wasn't victorious in the first century. And Christ didn't come back. But the book of Revelation says that he is going to come back. Okay, the historical view cannot be uniquely defended. Everybody who has it allocates the events that are supposedly predicting this long span of church history to different things. And it generally focuses on the Western church. And the idealist view is based on allegorical interpretation of events that are presented by John as real events. You really have to do violence to the book to argue that it's not about real things. What did Jesus say? He said, write down the things which must take place after this, and then you say, well, none of these things is ever really going to take place. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Um, And the preterist view doesn't fit into known history and it raises questions about the purpose of the book. Um, you know, why would God have John write a book which pretends to be predictive prophecy when in fact it's talking about events that are already past? It raises questions about honesty. You know, it seems to make the Holy Spirit into a liar. So I think the futurist view is by far the best. Now, we've just gone over this, the basic structure that comes from 119. Here's how it works. Chapter 1, the vision of Christ is the things which you have seen. Chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches are the things which are. And chapter 4, really to the end of the book, is the things which will take place after this. And there's that very important key in chapter 4, verse 1, where the voice says to John, I will show you the things which will take place after this. Okay? Now, let me turn this off for a moment and talk a little bit about what John's job was. If you look in chapter 1, John says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, and then he lists the seven churches. Now, when John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, 
I don't think the Lord's Day means Sunday, and I don't think in the Spirit means filled with the Spirit. My personal opinion is that John is saying he was given a vision of the Day of the Lord, meaning this period of cataclysmic events that's going to surround the second coming of Christ. Now, I do not think that John was transported forward in history and allowed to watch these events unfold and then transported back in time. I think he was given a vision. Now, listen carefully to what I'm about to say before you burn me. Okay? When John says, I saw four horses, a pale horse, a red horse, a black horse, and I can't remember what the other one looked like. Okay? John saw four horses. There are not going to be four colored horses prancing around the earth during the tribulation period. God showed John four horses, and those four horses represented something which John explains to us in the vision. Okay? It is a vision. The things that the vision conveys are realities but those realities are often represented symbolically okay now I interpret the book of Revelation literally but literal interpretation includes the recognition that certain things are symbolic of events that won't involve the thing he actually saw you follow me now to put it another way the vision that John received was kind of like a divinely prepared audio-visual presentation. And it was very pithy. Instead of John having to roam around the earth for seven years watching everything and figure out what it was about, John said, no, there's going to be war, there's going to be famine, there's going to be... I'm sorry, God said to John, there's going to be war, famine, pestilence, and plague. And he represented those things by horses or by other things. So... The vision that John received is very concise and it's very communicative. You know, the fact of the matter is, if you could send somebody into the future, into the tribulation, and hand them a video camera and have them take films for seven years continuously, and he brought the films back and showed them to us, we'd be horribly confused. That's not what God did. God gave John a structured vision that conveys not just the realities, but the significance of the events through symbolism. Are you with me? That is part of what we mean when we talk about literal interpretation. Okay? So if somebody comes up to you and says, there's not going to be a red horse, and you can say, well, you're right, there's not going to be a red horse. But the thing which the red horse represents for John and for which God showed John that red horse is going to be real. Okay? All right. Now let's talk a little bit more about the structure of the book in more detail. And I'll show you this on a chart in a moment. We've got the same three breakdowns, uh, three, three main sections, the things which you have seen in chapter 1, the things which are in chapters 2 and 3 and the things which will take place after this in chapters 4 to 27. In chapter 4 to 5, we have a vision of the throne room of heaven. What did I just do? Something silly? No? Okay. In, in chapter 4 and 5, we have a vision of the throne room of heaven. And the purpose of that vision is to show us 
that what is about to happen on earth is the action of a holy God and it is carried out under the direction of the only human being in the entire universe who has the right to impose judgment on mankind. And who is that? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he have the right? Because he's the only human being in the entire universe who has never sinned. He's the one who has the right to crack this seven-sealed scroll and impose these judgments on earth, one after the other. Okay? That's what that section does in chapters 4 and 5. Now, chapter 6 through about chapter 19, verse 6, is the account of the events of the tribulation. It is not strictly sequential, and I'll show you why in a few moments. Chapter 19, verse 7 through chapter 21 is an account, I'm sorry, chapter 19, 7 through verse 21 is an account of the second coming proper. And by that, I mean the actual event in which Jesus returns to our planet. Chapter 20 is an account of the millennium, which is basically the messianic kingdom. The only major detail that the account of Revelation 20 adds to our expectation for Messiah's kingdom, we've already got that expectation from our study of the Old Testament, right? And from Matthew 24 and a few other places. The only thing that it really adds, well, it adds two things, is the duration of that period. We're told that it's going to be a thousand years long. We never knew exactly how long it was going to be. And we are told that Satan is bound at the beginning of it and that he will be released briefly at the end of it. But if we did not have Revelation chapter 20, premillennialism would not be dead. Now, it's not that we want to champion premillennialism as if that's something that has an independent existence. Premillennialism comes from our understanding of what God said he would do for the nation of Israel. But if somebody comes to you and says, the only reason you're a premillennialist is because of Revelation 20, it ain't true. You could rip that from your Bible and the doctrine of premillennialism would be just as strong as it was beforehand. It's just that you'd have to get rid of the word millennium because that's the only place where we're told that it's going to be exactly a thousand years long. Okay? Chapters 21 and 22 are mostly about the new heavens and the new earth which will be created at the end of the millennium. And then there's a final word from the Lord at the end. That's supposed to be at the end of chapter 22. Okay? Now, visually, this is what it looks like. Okay? And this is really the same thing I just showed you. Um, You can stare at that for a few moments, and then I'll flip forward. That's in your notes. Okay. Now, what I want to talk to you about and I think I only have about four slides after this, is the sequence of the judgments in Revelation and a certain thing which I call parentheses. Okay? We know that there are four sets of judgment mentioned in the book of Revelation. You may be surprised to hear four. There are the seal judgments, and there are seven of them. Chapter 6 verses 1 to 17, and then chapter 8, verses 1 and 6. There are the trumpet judgments. There are seven of them. Chapter 8, verses 7 to 9 and 21, and then chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. 
There are the seven thunders. And they're mentioned in chapter 10, verse 4. But the Lord says, eh, cancel those. Not going to happen. Personally, did you ever notice that? The seven thunders? It's there. Okay? Remember in Matthew chapter 24 where Jesus says, Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. I think that's a reference to God saying we're not going to have the thunder judgments. It's just, just a personal heresy. They're, they're not going to happen. Well, okay, that's a good question. When John is told to seal them up, okay, I think it means they're not going to happen because with all the other judgments, they're unsealed, and that's when they occur. So I think the sealing really does mean cancel them. Okay? And I, and I don't want to suggest that at the last minute God changes his plan. Um, what, I, what I want to suggest is that God put this thing in there for this specific purpose of showing us that he is acting to preserve our race so that we don't get wiped out and so that he can fulfill his promises. Yeah. Okay, that's a personal heresy. You don't have to believe it. Okay, and then there are the bowl judgments, and there are seven of them, and those appear in chapter 16. <clears throat> All right, I already just said that. Um, there's a question. How do these judgments unfold in sequence, and where do they fit within the, tri the tribulation period? Well, there are two basic views on this. There are a few writers who think that the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments are just three different descriptions of the same single sequence of seven judgments. I don't think that's true, but if you compare the trumpet and bowl judgments, you will see that they kind of go, this is like this, this is like this, this is like this, in about five out of the seven cases, which is kind of interesting. Okay. Personally, I think God does that so that people who are alive on the earth during the tribulation will look at things and say, this is no accident. This is like what happened before. Why is this happening? And they're going to say, this is the hand of God. This is not just what happens in a fallen world. And then more sort of the other yes, I, I think you're right, Bob. You, you can see an intensification. You can also do some interesting things comparing the ten plagues of Egypt with the judgments in the book of Revelation, and there are some similarities there. And again, I think that's divinely designed for people to say, hmm, I think we've seen this before. This, this ain't an accident. What's that? Yeah, pattern is emerging, okay? <clears throat> the other more common view is that the judgments come sequentially with the last seal introducing the first trumpet and the last trumpet introducing the first bowl. And there does appear to be an increase in the pace, in the rapidity with which the judgments come. The bowl judgments seem to come bang, 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 bang. And that's emphasized in the text. I think the second view is, is correct, but... And this is the single thing that I'm going to show you that you may not have seen before that I hope will help you with the book. Parentheses in the book. Okay. Roughly speaking, this is what it looks like. Sequence of seven seals followed by seven trumpets followed by seven bowls. However, 
stuck in the middle of that, there are a bunch of these things which we could call parentheses. Okay? The discussion stops after the sixth seal, and then we hear about the 144,000 sealed Israelites and the multitude saved out of the Great Tribulation. After the sixth trumpet, we hear about the angel and the scroll and the two witnesses. Then we've got the seventh trumpet, and then we hear about what I call seven personages of the tribulation period. These are important characters. It includes Israel. It includes Satan. It includes Antichrist. It includes the false prophet. Okay? And this is quite extended. This is, what, four chapters long. 12, 13, 14, and 15. Now, <clears throat> as you're reading through this thing, if you don't recognize that these things are stuck in within the sequence, you can sort of lose the flow and you get kind of confused. Then we have the seven bowls, and following the seven bowls, there's one more parenthesis, and that's chapters 17 and 18, which dis discuss ecclesiastical and commercial Babylon. Okay. Now, if you see what's going on here, I think this will help you a lot as you read through the book. And what really is going on in these parentheses, okay, think about it this way. The book, well, chapter 4 and 5 show us what? We're up in the throne room of heaven. We're looking down on the earth. Christ is cracking the seals of this seven-seal scroll, and every time he cracks it, a judgment is imposed on the earth. Okay? So it's basically a heaven's-eye view of heaven. I'm sorry, a heaven's eye view of earth. Now, within these parentheses, it's kind of like John goes down and he gives you a man-on-the-scene description of things and you get more detail. And in some cases, he actually steps back in time and it's kind of like, meanwhile, back at the ranch, this is what happened. In this section, he's actually, actually going to step back in time all the way to the beginning of the nation of Israel. And he's going to talk about the fall of Satan, and he's going to talk about a whole bunch of things. The reason for these parentheses is to give you an additional perspective on the significance of the judgments that are coming down from heaven. So you sort of get an earth, uh, you know, uh, guy on the ground kind of view in, the in these parentheses, and you get kind of a divine view from heaven in the discussion of the, the three sequences of judgments. Okay? Yes? Yeah. Well, okay. Let, let, let's go there and look at that. Well, actually, before we do that, <clears throat> go to go to the end of chapter 8. I'm sorry, chapter 10. Go to the end of chapter 10. And then we'll get to that in a moment. <clears throat> okay? Take a look at verse 8 in chapter 10. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And I went to the angel and I said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. 
This is Ipecac. How many of you remember Ipecac? And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. Mmm. <laughs> when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And what does he do? He pukes all over us. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many people, nations, tongues, and kings. Now that happens right... Oh, I hit a button there I wasn't supposed to hit. Sorry. That hit happens right... Where is it? How does that fit into my angel and the scroll? Yeah, okay. That's happening right here. Okay? And he goes on and he tells us more about the two witnesses. Okay? But the point of this is when he says you must prophesy again about these things, it's a hint that John is sort of backing up in time and giving more information about some of the period that has already been covered in the sequence of the judgments. Now, let's go to the big one in chapters 12 through 15. And I'll show you what I'm talking about. Most of your Bibles in 12.1 start with the word now. You see that word now? Or but, or and. Well, there's a Greek word there. It's day. And it often suggests kind of a shift in topic. It's like, now here's something I want you to get. All right? And he says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. You know enough about Scripture to know who that woman is. Who is it? It's Israel, right? Remember Joseph's dream? Joseph dreamed that his father and his mother were the sun and the moon and that the stars were their children. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give, and pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. You know who that is. Do you notice that the seven heads and ten horns sounds like Daniel chapter 7? Then it says, His tail drew a third of the stars out of heaven and threw them to the earth. You know from your study of Scripture that those stars are symbols for what? Angels. Okay? And this is probably a description of the fall of Satan, or, or to put it better, the rebellion of Satan and he's bringing other angels into his rebellion. Now, that's an event that happened a long, long time ago and certainly happened long before the tribulation period started. Now, the reason this parenthesis is here is that God wants us to know through John's vision what is behind the people who are going to be the moving forces on earth during the tribulation period. And one of those people is the Antichrist. And one of them is the false prophet. And in order to enable us to see who the Antichrist and false prophet are, they are agents of Satan, he's got to take us all the way back to the rebellion of Satan. And he takes us through the sequence of events, and then by the time we get to chapter 13, we've got the beast from the sea and the false prophet. 
the beast from the sea is Antichrist. Now, remember I was saying that sometimes he jumps backward in time? Well, he's doing that here so that as you read the book, these characters don't show up out of nowhere and you say, who is this? Why is he important? And he's making links with earlier scripture. You know, he talks about the seven heads and the ten horns. And you go, aha, Daniel 7. I know this guy. And, you know, we'll see in here, uh, look at verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared for her by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Who? Where do we know that from? Daniel 7. Three and a half times. A time is a period of 360 days. 1,260 days is three and a half times 360. My math is not that good. I've just looked at it before. Okay. Um, so that's the kind of thing that's going on here. Anyway, if in your own study of the book, if you recognize this structure, um, it will help you a lot. Okay. Now, here I've got some more things. I think this is just a, a recap. Yeah, this is just stuff we just did. Okay. Here's... Mm, can you give me two more minutes? Okay. Even if he said no, I was going to keep going. <laughs> Where do the judgments fit within the tribulation period? Okay. Expositors differ on this point. Come on, go forward. Okay, there we are. And now it's going to jump forward too far. Okay, some people would place the sealed judgments, the first batch of seven judgments in the first half of the tribulation here. Okay. Others would hold all the judgments for the second half. I think personally, I believe the sealed judgments start in this first half, probably near the end of it. It's impossible to be dogmatic on this. We do know that the second half of the tribulation, which Jesus called the Great Tribulation, is the time when these things reach a crescendo. And by the time we get to the second coming, all three sets of judgments have been poured out on the earth. Okay? Now, this is just another, this is kind of a close up shot of what we've looked at before in the structure of the events of the tribulation. The thing I was trying to emphasize when I drew this chart was that the people on earth are kind of stuck. Okay? Satan is down on the earth wreaking havoc, persecuting believers, forcing everybody to take the mark and enslaving people and making everybody do exactly what he wants them to do, which kind of sounds like things happening in our country today. Meanwhile... God in heaven is throwing these judgments down on the earth and everybody is being affected by them. And you're kind of stuck in the middle. It's like this crucible. And people are going to react in one of two ways. They're either going to shake their fists at God and they're going to say, I'm not going to listen, or they're going to say, wait a minute, something really unusual is going on here. God is at work and I need to turn to him. It's going to be one of those two things. And it's going to be a very difficult time to be on earth, but it is also going to be a very powerful evidence of supernatural reality, both 
in the lying miracles performed by Satan and these unusual sequences of judgments that are coming down to earth from heaven that are, don't do that, that are uh, unlike anything else that the world has seen. It'll come back. Okay? Um, One more picture, which is really the same one you saw earlier, except, and this is hard to see, I'm sorry, this is an old transparency. The punchline is that Christ comes back. Okay? Remember in Daniel chapter 7, the little horn is making war with the saints and is prevailing against them until the time comes when God makes a judgment in favor of the saints and they are given the kingdom? Well, they're given the kingdom when Christ comes down and establishes the kingdom and says, you are mine, rule and reign with me. Okay? But, you know, the punchline of the book is that Christ comes again. He wins. Satan loses. Obviously. Okay? Belen? The resurrection of those who do not die in Uh, it's not at Armageddon, but it's... I'm trying to move back to an earlier slide. Let's see if it goes. Um, it's shortly... It, it's essentially right after the second coming of Christ, as I understand it, yes. And that's the way most people take it. At the beginning of the millennium. You know, you go to Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about the Old Testament saints who died not having received what they looked for forward to. And at the end of that chapter... It says, these all died in hope, not having received the promises that God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. And the point is that we as church age Christians and they as Old Testament saints will both enter the kingdom at the same point in time. Okay. You're talking about tribulation saints? I'm talking about the people who are going to hell, not the hell. Oh, they don't get resurrected until the end of the millennium. Okay. At the great white throne judgment. No, the Battle of Armageddon is here. Oh, okay. Battle of Armageddon is at the okay. end of the tribulation. What about the ones, then I'm talking about the wrong ones. The, okay. The, after the, the Gog and Magog at the end of the millennium. When Satan is released and he... Uh-huh. And, and he... War right. Yeah. I, okay, well... It's... Well, okay, let's look at it in Revelation 20. Revelation 20, verse 10, tells of the defeat of those who joined Satan in his rebellion. And look at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the heaven and earth fled away and there was found no fa- no place for them. I think that description of heaven and earth flying away and no f- place being found for them is the same as the melting of the elements and the dissolving of the universe that's described in 2 Peter chapter 3. So that's the actual end of this universe and it's he says then, verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were open. So I believe... Essentially, the dissolution of this universe and the resurrection of the unsaved dead occur at the same time. 
the great white throne judgment, if you will, occurs kind of in this gap between the time when the present heaven and earth have been wiped out and when the new heavens and new earth begin. It's kind of, you know, it, it's really a moment in time, but... Gary? I may have misunderstood you, but did you say that some people believe the trumpet bowl and civil judgment happened in the second half of the... Mm-hmm. Well, well, okay. Um, somebody could argue, and, and maybe they do, I don't know, that Revelation 6 starts at the midpoint of the tribula- tribulation. I don't think that makes sense, but I think some may have argued that. <clears throat> um, but I, I think the more common view is that the seal judgments begin during the first half of the tribulation. Yeah. Okay, folks, we're all worn out. Um, again, thank you, ladies, for bringing dinner for us. It was delightful. Becca, do you have a question? No, nobody has the notes. I said that you had the notes, and that was a mistake. Um, okay, let, let's talk about this, and then we'll pray. Anybody who wants a copy of the notes for the book of Revelation, send me an email and Glenn will make you a copy and we will get you a copy. Oh, is that the one you referred to last week? Yes, but it's long. How many pages? It's 50 pages long. If If you would rather just have essentially a copy of what I just presented to you here in PowerPoint, I could also provide that for you. Okay, just just send me an email and we'll arrange it. Okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the blessings you've shown us tonight and through the through the year. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Father, for not keeping us in the dark about your plans for the future or about your ways. Thank you for revealing yourself in your Son, the living word, and in the Bible, your written word. We pray that we may be good stewards of what we have learned. Fill us with an even greater desire to know more and also to obey more and to share more. Please give us your protection as we go home. Peaceful rest and strength for the new day tomorrow. We pray this through your Son. Amen.